Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from the Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number three, the book of Jonah, chapter one, continued. We left off in verse four of Jonah chapter one last time. And after all the preliminaries, of the first three verses to set up this sea saga of uh, Jonah, we get down to brass tacks in verse 4 as God hurls a, a violent storm towards the ship carrying Jonah and, and, and crew with the idea of impeding its progress. Now I said in the introduction to the book of Jonah that it is generally agreed among Bible academia that it is perhaps the most complex, most challenging book of the Bible to properly translate and interpret even though on the surface it seems to be not too much more than a basic child story about a man falling overboard and getting swallowed by a whale. Therefore I'm going to warn you in advance that in today's lesson things are going to get necessarily technical. They're going to get pretty detailed so that we can ascertain the true meaning of Jonah's story and then be able to apply it to our understanding of God and His very nature. This meaning is wrapped up in how the world operated in the 8th century BC. And so, what goes on was well understood by the earliest hearers and readers of Jonah, yet it is nothing, of course, like the culture and worldview of modern times. I kind of liken some of what we're going to study today as when in elementary school we had to learn our multiplication tables. It wasn't anything I think any of us was very excited about. And yet, without learning it, our ability to use math could not progress any further. To get there, we're going to take a, a couple of short detours, with one of them involving a seemingly simple conversation that Jonah has with some sailors on the ship he's hired to take him to Tarshish, and it involves him revealing his identity. So let's reread Jonah chapter 1, but let's start at verse 4. So open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1, and we'll start with verse 4. <clears throat> However, Adonai let loose over the sea a violent wind, which created such stormy conditions that the ship threatened to break to pieces. The sailors were frightened. Each cried out to his God. They threw the cargo overboard to make the ship easier for them to control. Now, Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down below into the hold where he lay fast asleep. The ship's captain found him and said to him, What do you mean by sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Maybe the God will remember us and we won't die. Then they said to each other, Come, let's draw lots to find out 
Who is to blame for this calamity? And they drew lots, and Jonah was singled out. And they said to him, Tell us now, why has this calamity come upon us? What work do you do? Where are you from? Where are you from? What's your country? Which is your people? And he answered them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Adonai, what it really says is Jehovah, God of the heaven, who made both the sea and the dry land. At this the men grew very afraid, and they said to him, well, What is this you've done? For the men knew he was trying to get away from Adonai since he told them. And they asked him, Well, what should we do to you so that the sea will be calm for us? For the sea was getting rougher all the time. Pick me up, he told them, and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, because I know it's my fault that this terrible storm has come over you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard, trying to reach the shore, but they couldn't, because the sea kept growing wilder against them. Finally, they cried to Adonai, Please, Adonai, please, don't let us perish for causing the death of this man, and don't hold us to account for shedding innocent blood, because you, Adonai, have done what you saw fit. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped raging. Seized with fear of Adonai, they offered a sacrifice to Adonai and made vows. <clears throat> okay, the crux of verse 4 is that the ship that Jonah is on is in real danger of sinking because Jehovah caused a storm to pummel it. Now the dangerous storm was caused by him throwing a large volume of wind against the sea. Now keep in mind that Jonah is in full-blown rebellion, refusing to obey God's command to go to Nineveh and speak the oracle that God once conveyed to its Gentile citizens. Now, Jonah's misguided and stubborn reaction is to try to run and hide from God, and God is having none of it. Every aspect of what's happening and what's about to happen, then, is at the direct hand of God in order to deal with this rebellious Jonah. Thus, if we ever want to ask the question, does God cause catastrophes and troubles to happen, and can the innocent as well as the guilty be affected by it? The definitive answer is yes on both accounts. We find such a thing in several Bible stories. Who could forget the Great Flood, for example? Now, without doubt, every last person on planet Earth was not equally wicked. Just as without doubt, Noah and his family were not perfectly, entirely innocent. Yet all were affected. The guilty at all levels were destroyed, and the righteous to some level, all eight of them, were saved. It was entirely Jehovah's call to determine this, and it is His right to do so, because He is the author of life. Now sometimes we forget, or we sort of minimize, that as we advance towards the later stage of the end times period, 
Yehovah is going to crush this planet like a grape under the fury and weight of His wrath. Everyone still alive will be affected in one terrible way or another and to some degree or another. This will include those who, after the rapture event, finally see the truth and they trust in Yehovah and His Son Yeshua. This is not a part of God's character that is often well accepted among modern believers. The preferred notion is that while in the past, pre-Jesus, that might have been the case when God the Father, a harsh and rules-oriented God, was in charge. After the cross, things have changed. The erroneous belief is that Yeshua is now in charge. He no longer does the will of His Father, but rather of His own will. Therefore, the governing dynamic is completely changed. And this is part of the outcome of the dispensational doctrine, church philosophy. Now, the logic presented is that Jesus is all about grace concerning all things. And since Christ is our friend, as much as or maybe even more than our master, what true friend would cause or participate in a divinely inspired calamity to befall their friends? And if Messiah is love, then how does love allow, let alone intentionally generate and direct disasters on people? Bottom line, that the old era has passed and we live in one in which God showers only His grace and mercy upon us, and we have no reason to fear Him. Well, I want to remind you of what I told you last week. That even the Apostle Paul survived not one, not two, but three calamities, all involving the sea. Involving everyone on board those three vessels, not just him. God either changes or he doesn't. And since he is inherently perfect, then the notion of God changing is an oxymoron. God the Father is still in charge with His Son Yeshua as His agent, so to speak. God still causes, some cases allows, various disasters to occur in order to achieve His own purposes and to advance His goal of redeeming His creation. Even though most times we meet we might not know He did so, except in hindsight, when those purposes become revealed. I cannot say it strongly enough, fellow believers. It is not our position to put God on trial, to see if His true character is right or fair, or to ask Him to change His character to fit our ever-evolving parameters. Jonah is in the midst of discovering that as well, even though clearly he doesn't really get that just yet. Now, verse 5 begins a split. 
between the way the ship's crew handles this sudden tempest versus the way that Jonah does. Now the crew is depicted as afraid and panicked, while Jonah is virtually oblivious to it. The crew's reaction is to cry out each man to his own gods. Actually, what the verse says is, each man to his own Elohim. Now in the study of the book of Amos, I pointed out that very probably it is a poor translation to translate the Hebrew Elohim as God or gods, and I went to some depth to explain why that is. Rather, a much better translation that the better brings across the mindset of the ancient writers who would, would be Elohim as meaning something like divine being or divine beings. And, and you can go to that lesson for the teaching on Elohim. Now, the reason that understanding and using the term divine being instead of God or gods is because when a typical Judeo-Christian Judeo encounters the term gods in our Bible, we subconsciously prefix it with the word false, false gods. That is, Elohim are false or they're non-existent gods, non-existent spiritual beings. They're just human fantasy. Yet, clearly the Holy Scriptures, Old and New Testaments, confirm their existence. So whatever exactly the Elohim are, they're not something like the Greek pantheon of gods of mythology, nor are they only figments of the imaginations of the ancient people. They have existed since before creation of the physical universe and form a kind of divine council that the Godhead delegates certain tasks to. Of the hierarchy of spiritual beings, they seem they're the highest with only the Godhead being above them. Now these sailors were calling out to their own divine beings, their Elohim, actual divine beings who were given charge over each particular nation of people whom the sailors thought had the power to help them. So by throwing now cargo overboard, the crew lightened the ship, which made it more buoyant, sitting higher in the water, thus making it less subject to waves washing across the deck. Now to do so was rather standard procedure in a sea emergency such as this one. It is for us to just presume that they had already called out to their own Elohim for help, but no help had arrived. The storm had not abated. So now they take matters into their own hands and start throwing valuable cargo overboard. Now make no mistake, throwing cargo overboard is a drastic, last-ditch effort to save their lives and their vessel. I mean, the cargo is the point of the voyage in the first place. It's what they are getting paid to do. So to jettison it is a very serious and expensive matter. 
Now, another plot angle that we need to bake into this story is that it would have taken some time for the crew to throw sufficient cargo overboard to do any good. The sequence of events that we read in the story is not bang, 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 like the brevity of the narration makes it feel like to us. So time passed between the decision to jettison cargo and then to start retrieving it from the cargo hold, then next to go down and confront Jonah as he lay asleep in the lowest part of the ship's hold. I don't know how long, but it took a while. My take is that Jonah was merely pretty tired and exhausted. Nothing unusual. That is, this was not a spiritual matter per se, whereby God was giving Jonah some kind of inner peace. When he could stay awake no longer, he went to the only place a passenger could go. Once the car, and that's one of the cargo decks below. That's it. And he found a space to sit, or maybe to lie down just as the storm erupted. To the ship's crew, Jonah was but human cargo. It, it wasn't his duty or his job to help them with the ship. Well, as the crew climbed up and down from the upper deck to the cargo hold to grab cargo and throw it overboard, the captain of the ship suddenly realizes that Jonah's down there sleeping. And so he comes upon the sleeping, or at least the dozing, Jonah, who must have found a place between some of the baskets or crates um, to rest. The captain confronts him. He wants to know why, maybe it's how. He is sleeping through all this turmoil. And he insists that Jonah call, up, call, Jonah call upon his own personal Elohim for help. Noting that perhaps Jonah's God, Jonah's Elohim, will care enough to do something about their perilous situation. Now, in the English language and in the culture of the modern West, the words said to Jonah probably sound like the captain's frustrated or he's just incredulous over Jonah's casual behavior towards this life-threatening situation, but that might not be the case. This may be, most likely, simply the narrator's typical economy of words at play. But in our knee-jerk Western cultural bent, we sort of expect some kind of a, I don't know, a cordial conversation to, it, to ensure that nothing that is said can be seen as rude, all right, unless rudeness is intended. So was the captain being rude? Well, I think he was surprised to find Jonah dozing and calm. So I asked him immediately to wake up and beseech his Elohim for help since everybody else has, but to no avail, because the boat's going to sink at any moment. In fact, the biblical idiom of that era, the Hebrew malacha, how can you or why are you sleeping, expresses more emotion and insistence than how that term is used today in modern Hebrew. That is, malacha today is generally used to a common bland question asking for information, or it's also just used as a polite greeting. 
So considering the gravity of the situation, I imagine every word spoken by the crew members was filled with the emotions of urgency and terror. So here's our first detour. Let's address how the world of the gods was thought of throughout the biblical era, or at least in the Middle Eastern area of the world, in order to better understand the captains and the crew's thought processes and their reactions. Nearly without exception, everyone was a polytheist. Atheists were non-existent as were pure monotheists, those who believe there is only one God in all the universe. Nearly all people believed in and approached a number of gods in their own God system, and also fully accepted and respected the notion of other people legitimately having their own systems that approach some different gods. Generally speaking, there were three different kinds or categories of gods. There were family gods, usually belonging to the extended clan, perhaps even to an entire tribe. Then there were national gods that were seen as the protectors or the authorities over an entire nation that had identifiable, identifiable geographical boundaries. And finally, there were personal gods who were only concerned with individuals or maybe a, an immediate family. So we can understand that each person had a whole cupboard full of gods, each of them serving different purposes, as well as the sum total of those many gods existing in some kind of a hierarchy of status and power. Now the Israelites believed no differently. Jonah believed no differently. While Jehovah was their national God, and for some Israelites he doubled as their family and personal God, this by no means meant to them that there weren't many other legitimate gods worshipped by other people in other nations. Therefore, we have to set aside our modern and automatic negative response to the notion of other gods existing because the existence of all these gods is how people thought about it. It's how they wrote about it, and that includes Israel. And by the way, even right through the New Testament era. Therefore, it made complete sense to the captain to ask Jonah to plead with his personal God to save them all. Now since the crew figured that it was someone's personal God involved in hurling this perilous storm at them, then the next issue was to try to discern which one of the people on board had in some way angered or offended his own personal God sufficiently to cause that God to react in a way that endangered them all. They chose the method of drawing lots. Now, lots were not seen as random. They were not a matter in their eyes of chance or luck. Rather, this was divination. What was lots? 
Well, lots were one of a few ways in ancient times to solicit a clear answer from the gods for a situation they needed that needed to be resolved immediately. So it's, it's kind of an irony that although Jehovah prohibited any kind of fortune-telling or witchcraft in Israel, the use of lots was acceptable. In the Bible, lots was used for choosing Israel's first king, was used for determining the distribution of goods and animals and even people captured from an enemy. It was used for settling some disputes. We find lots used to, to, to help determine territory in the Promised Land that would be given to each of the Israelite tribes. The famous Urim and Thummim that the high priest of, Real, uh, of Israel used at times to determine specific answers for specific questions about God's will was just a, essentially a kind of lots. Probably what the sailors used was something like dice. And Jonah would have had no issue with that because it fit perfectly with his Hebrew faith. Proverbs 18, 18, casting lots puts an end to strife and separates powerful disputants. Proverbs 16, 33, one can cast lots into one's lap, but the decision comes from Adonai. Jonah 1, 7 says, they indeed cast lots. And Jonah was selected as the clear-cut culprit. Now, now that Jonah's found out, they want to understand better what's happening and why. Therefore, the sailors ask four questions of Jonah. What's your mission? That is, what is the purpose for your traveling to Tarshish? Second, where do you come from? Now, this, this means where he had been residing most recently. Third, what do you call your homeland? Where is your national birthplace? Okay. And fourth, to what people do you belong? What's your ethnic loyalty? Now, these four questions, when answered, essentially establish Jonah's identity. Now, while we might see some of these questions as overlapping, it is not just two ways to see the same thing. That's not how it was to them. Now, the crew, who were from various homelands and ethnicities, had some inkling that Jonah was from an area not far from the port from which they had sailed, Joppa, Jaffa. And it's probably a good assumption that all the sailors spoke a common language, probably a common Canaanite dialect such as Aramaic. And that it was a language that Jonah was familiar with enough that they could hold a rather complex dialogue. Now, Jonah perfectly understands the reason for these four questions. So he answers quite forthrightly in verse 9. This begins the part of today's talk that I warned you about at the beginning, because it's going to get very technical. I know you all can grasp it if you'll just focus for the next few minutes. And I assure you that it will make 
a practical difference in your understanding of the Bible in general if you'll just hang in there. Okay. Jonah responds to the captain's questions by saying, I am a Hebrew. Simple enough. That seems clear, straightforward. However, that simple phrase is only rarely found in the Bible. Perhaps only here. And then in the New Testament is uttered by Paul in Philippians 3.5. Now, that ought to alert us that something limited or odd is being addressed with those words. But what we typically take from it, it is actually somewhat different from how the people of the 9th and the 8th centuries BC understood it. So we're going to begin that first detour I mentioned to discuss and hopefully flesh out what that term Hebrew and a couple of other terms used to describe something about the family line of descendants of Abraham, which continued on through his son Isaac, meant to people of the biblical era and in the process discover why and how we find these three different terms used in the scriptures at different times in history for various situations. Okay. They are by no means synonymous, nor did their meaning remain the same over the centuries. Even though the most standard Bible versions tend to treat those three terms as if they were essentially parallel and interchangeable at all times. That's just incorrect. Okay, two of those three terms are Hebrew and Israelite. The third term is usually said by Jewish and Christian scholars to be Jew. The third term is a bit more problematic and complex to deal with than the first two. Therefore, I'm going to start by first dealing with the term that Jonah described himself as a Hebrew. Confronting it as it was used in the early days of the Bible, that is long before the New Testament era. Now, in the ancient use of the Hebrew language, the word is Ivri. Ivri. And it is derived from an older Semitic word that means to cross over. It refers to a well-known group of people led by Abraham who formerly resided in Eber. However, they crossed over, they migrated across the Euphrates River to a land on the other side of it. Eber was a known term, meaning the general region on the northern and eastern side of the Euphrates River. And the reason they referred to that land as Eber is because it was named for their famous ancestor, Eber, who, as listed in the Bible list of generations, was 14 generations removed from Adam, seven generations removed from Enoch. So even if the people of that era didn't really fully know the complete story of Abraham and all of its spiritual and religious implications, 
they were aware enough to know that historically speaking, a famous man leading some people who crossed over the Euphrates River to the south and to the west went on to become an entirely new, large, and influential ethnic group called the Ibri, Hebrews. They also knew that Hebrews were separate enough and culturally distinct enough from all the other world's ethnicities to be seen as unique among humanity in general, and therefore they weren't all that well understood. Now I want to say this another way. In that era, the easiest and surest way for an Israelite like Jonah to explain his identity to a foreigner was to label himself a Hebrew, an Ivri. It is similar to the way a citizen of the USA who is visiting a foreign country might explain his identity. He would, he would likely use the very broad term American, okay, which nearly everyone on our planet would understand no further information is needed. A second term now, Israelite. This refers to a person that is descended from the family of a man named Jacob. The biblical Hebrew term for Israelite is Bene Israel, while it literally means son or child of Israel. What it meant in that era was that this person belongs to the identifiable nation of Israel. So while the Hebrew explains about a person's original ethnicity, separate and distinct from all other ethnicities, the term Israelite speaks of which identifiable nation, a geographical place, a political entity that a person owes their allegiance to. Now for the problematic third term, Jew. This is a bit confusing, but it's important especially for good serious Bible students to study and for proper doctrine so that we can untangle it. Now biblically, the Hebrew language terms that are nearly always translated into English as Jew are Yehud or Yehudi. Now initially it referred to a person who was an actual member of the specific tribe of Judah, the tribe of Judah. It was based purely on a tribal affiliation, the tribe which sprang from the third son of Jacob. Over time the meaning evolved. After Israel entered the Promised Land, it evolved slightly to include living in a particular geographical territory that the members of the tribe of Judah occupied there. So we have a progression in the Bible of what that word meant based on which time in biblical history that we're exploring. Put it another way, at first Judah was simply the name of an individual. This was Jacob's third son. Once Judah's own family grew large enough, 
to become its own tribe, which took many generations to grow to that size. Then the term Judah came to refer to his extended family, a specific tribe, the tribe of Judah. However, once the tribe of Judah migrated and it entered into the Promised Land, and then it was assigned its own territory, the term more referred to that specific territory. But it also included the identity of the people who counted themselves as residents of that territory of Judah. Later still, after David's and then King Solomon's death in the 10th century BC, Judah went from being a tribal territory to become its own full-fledged, sovereign, and recognized nation with its own king. At that point, the meaning of the Hebrew terms Yehud and Yehudi evolved into indicating a particular nationality called Judah or Judahite in English. A long time after that, after the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled from their own national territory by Syria, and later after Judah's exile to Babylon, and then later still after their return to their former territory, the terms Yehud and Yehudi were used to describe the returned exiles and all who accompanied them. And we know that some of the exiles of the Assyrian conquest, some from that group we call the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel, joined those coming home from Babylon. The English words adopted to identify this group, still called Yehud or Yehudi in, in Hebrew, was Jew. More time passed, and the terms Yehud and Yehudi further evolved to more refer to the particular religion that was practiced and had less to do with exactly where those folks were located. Again, the word chosen by most English translators just remained Jew. Now, I realize that none of this might matter to a casual Bible reader, but for you serious students of God's Word, these differences are a significant ingredient to properly understand what we're being told. I mean, it truly matters. So a few decades now, after the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, the era of the rabbis, and along with it the term Jew acquired an even broader meaning, as generally anyone who followed a religion that was now more formally known as Judaism. Today, in the 21st century, after nearly two millennia of adding new traditions and customs and of Jewish people migrating to every part of this planet, even the rabbis can't agree on exactly what a Jew is or how to define the term. Must it include a genetic attachment to Jacob? If so, how could that ever be proved? Does it only refer to a practicing member of their religion, Judaism? Might it be a person whose family history shows that some of them practiced Judaism? regardless of their own ethnic background, that is, no genetic tie at all, Dave Jacob was needed. 
does one have to even believe in the God of Israel to be considered a Jew? In modern times, the answer is a firm no. Of course, that depends on which rabbi you might talk to. So on our day, the term Jew is very flexible and it's hazy. Something that mostly indicates some level of identity, identity, identity with some claim of allegiance to a group of people that historically practiced some level of Jewish traditions and laws that began with the return of the exiles from Babylon. Therefore, there has been a pretty contentious ongoing debate among Jewish leaderships in modern Israel as to what to call and how to consider now how to consider these exiles of the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom of ancient Israel, something that's completely separate from the Babylonian conquest of the southern kingdom of Judah, who are now coming home to Israel in ever-increasing numbers. Many of the folks, they don't want to be called Jews, primarily because they see the term in its ancient sense. As meaning a combination as a member of the tribe of Judah, which they certainly are not, along with the religion they uniquely practice called Judaism. Rather, many of these returning exiles of the so-called Ten Lost Tribes have practiced and instead and intend to continue to practice a somewhat different set of faith traditions that they see as the truer and the older religion that is called for by the same Hebrew scriptures that adherents of Judaism claim to follow. Complicated, isn't it? But this is the reality. And if we don't understand all this, then we completely misconstrue what we read in the Bible about Abraham's descendants. So here's the thing for us to grasp today. At no time in the Bible, Older New Testaments, did the term Jew mean what it means today? No time. It's an anachronistic term. That means that while we use it today, we should not read it back into the Bible because it wasn't in use back then. Rather, when in Hebrew or in its Greek equivalent, the term Yehud or Yehudi mostly referred to the residents of the territory belonging to the tribe of Judah. Once we get to the Roman era, in other words, this is the time of the New Testament, the Greek language became dominant and the term Ioedos was used because of the spread of the Greek language as the preferred language throughout the Roman Empire. Therefore, we find the Greek word Ioedos in the New Testament as a replacement for the Hebrew Yehud or Yehudi. Now, depending on the biblical context in which it is used, Ioedos meant either a person who followed the religion that the people of Judah did, or it meant a person who was the resident of a Roman province called Judea. When we read the New Testament, we find that those folks claiming family ties to Jacob who live in Judea call themselves Judeans to distinguish themselves from other descendants of Jacob, other Israelites who lived in other places 
than Judea. For example, folks descended from Jacob who lived in the Roman province of the Galilee, like Yeshua, like all of his disciples, is what they called themselves, Galileans. Other descendants of Jacob who lived in faraway places in the vast Roman Empire, well, but had next to no connection to the Holy Land, simply because of the great distance from it that they lived, yet still they identified themselves to some level to the Israelites living in the Holy Land. Well, they were also called Ayuedos. So here's the thing we need to understand when reading the New Testament. Ayuedos was a very general catch-all Greek term for all these various folks that saw themselves as a member of a distinct Hebrew heritage, culture, religion, apart from other people on this planet. Now, it's challenging, as I know this is to visualize. The reality is that languages have always evolved. And by the way, this includes English. And circumstances and history, that's also evolved. And so labels for people, labels, uh, labels for ethnicities did the same as concerning their meaning. As concerns the use of our three biblical terms, Hebrew, Israelite, and Jew, we do not have any significant confusion in the Old, Te in the Old Testament, except that caused by agenda-driven reasons for using English words that do not accurately reflect the real meaning of those Hebrew words at that time. The confusion exists mainly in our New Testament. Should we encounter the English word Jew in the Old Testament, it's a poor translation that ought to just be thrown out and replaced in English by the word Judean nearly every time. I know that's a lot to take in. I know it. So now let's get back to our lesson and apply what you just learned to verse 9. Jonah identified himself as Hebrew, which immediately told his counterparts on the ship he was very different from them. They would immediately know Jonah has a different God. He has a different God system from theirs. Next, Jonah says he fears, that is, he has a relig religious allegiance to the Lord, the God of heaven. This is another incorrect English translation. Even though, generally speaking, every English Bible one can consult uses these same or very similar words, it misses the mark in a very crucial way. First, the English term Lord, Adonai in Hebrew, doesn't even appear there. Rather, the word that appears in the Holy Scriptures is Yehovah, God's formal name. This is critical, because if Jonah didn't give the captain and the multi-ethnic crew a formal name for his particular God, then those sailors he was talking to would have no idea which God he was even talking about. 
and which God was entirely the crux of what they were asking Jonah about. That was the answer to their question. Now imagine you and I are having a conversation about cars. I love cars. Out of curiosity, you ask me what car I drive. And I respond, it's an automobile. Well, that imparts no information to you whatsoever. What you're asking for, of course, is the formal name, the particular brand, the particular model of the car I drive. See, it works the same in the Bible as regards gods. When the term God or Lord or Elohim appears, these are all somewhat generic terms, like the way we use the word car. For anyone of the biblical era, no matter their culture, what mattered is the name of one's God or Lord or Elohim, so that that particular one is properly identified, because there were so many of them. Jonah told the sailors that the particular God he worshipped as a Hebrew is named Yehovah. But even more, where in our Bibles it has Jonah continue to further explain his God's identity with the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This is also misleading and a poor English translation. The Hebrew word that Jonah uses in, is actually the Elohim of heaven. And Elohim does not mean God, it means divine being. Or even more specifically, it is referring to a particular named category of spiritual divine beings. Jonah then goes on to explain which Elohim of heaven he bows down to because it was understood there was more than one. Jonah's God is the Elohim above all other Elohim. He uniquely made, he created, the sea and the dry land. That is, Jonah says that his, that Yehovah, his Elohim, is the one God who literally made planet Earth. Yehovah is the Creator, and as I've stated before, Elohim is not the Hebrew for God. Yah is the specific Hebrew word for the God of the Bible. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yah refers only to Yehovah. My conclusion is that Elohim is God or God's. It, 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 why is that done? It is the Bible translators flat out didn't know what Elohim actually meant. Or perhaps it's because to acknowledge it, well, that challenges long established Christian doctrines. Or perhaps it could cause us to veer away from a Greek cultural understanding of what is meant. And Greek is the perspective of understanding the Bible that is virtually universal in Roman Western Christianity. Now I urge you, look up the Torah class lessons on the book of Amos, lesson numbers 10 and 11. You're going to get a lot more thorough understanding on the meaning of Elohim, and it matters. Now, verse 10 begins literally. 
with the men feared a great fear. That is, Jonah's admission took their already heightened anxieties to another level. These men were caught as collateral damage in a power struggle. A power struggle between Jonah's offense of some sort and his God's violent reaction to it. The crew was powerless because this God was unknown to them, and even though they may well have heard of him, it's, you know, it's an odd irony. We, we have a situation here whereby Jonah fears Jehovah in the sense of fear is meaning recognizing his sovereignty, yet openly rebels against him. But the crew of the ship fears Jehovah in the sense of being in terror of him, terror of him and his power, but don't recognize his sovereignty over them. See, this is an excellent illustration of how the ancients thought the gods worked, how their personal relationship with the gods worked. Jonah is confronted by a fearful crew. Well, now they're angry. What have you done? They tell him. What have you done? That is, they figured out that their old ordeal is because of this Hebrew, Jonah, that they're transporting. They had no idea when he booked passage that he was in the midst of angering his personal God. And since these men were religious, well, they fully understood just how serious Jonah's actions were. It was as if they were innocently tied to a person that has weighted himself down with rocks intent on jumping into deep water and committing suicide. So the final words of verse 10 no doubt came after some further interrogation of Jonah whereby he confessed that it was his offense against his God that was causing this problem and was that he, what he refused to do was to do as he was told and he decided to run away from God. Great, they thought. Oh, this is just great. Now what? Well, the now what starts to take form in verse 11. The crew's hope is that since Jonah is a prophet of this God, he might know how to appease him in order to save their collective lives. No doubt each of these men worship one or another of the Baals. So they thought about it in those terms. They beseeched Jonah to explain to them what they need to do, since they're unfamiliar with how Jonah's particular God operates. But when we realize the terrible, the dangerous situation they're in, and that this is Jonah's fault, well, crew's acting, they're behaving rather rationally. They're not seeking vengeance against Jonah. Well, the lightening of the load by throwing heavy cargo overboard seems to have bought the crew a little bit of time. Jonah's solution to their dilemma that opens verse 12 was absolutely shocking to the men. Shocking. 
Jonah says, pick me up, throw me into the sea. Jonah says that the only solution is for the crew to kill, to essentially execute him as just punishment for Jonah offending his God. This is where we'll stop today, and we'll pick it up next time.